0: I think most people would be shocked to learn that their healthcare provider receives maybe 40 hours or less of nutritional education. Most of that isn't relevant to what patients experience on a daily basis.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Science is Gray podcast. Contrary to widespread belief and mainstream media portrayals, science isn't always black and white. I'm your host, Serena Farb, and as a former science teacher with a biochemistry degree and passionate justice activist, I believe that social progress and justice depend on open scientific dialogue and debate, even when it's unpopular or controversial. On this podcast, we have in-depth conversations exploring scientific issues from a holistic perspective that allows room for nuance, understanding bias, ethical dilemmas, and reaching into the gray areas of science and ethics in society. The clip you just heard was current fourth-year medical student Lucky Mulpuri about the state of nutrition and preventative medicine in our healthcare system. As a Detroit-area native, Lucky has always been passionate about disparities that exist within healthcare and policy. And now a medical student at Wayne State University, Lucky is a community activist and strong proponent of the benefits of plant-based nutrition. He even helped create the first-ever plant-based nutrition curriculum required for first-year medical students. If you are curious about how our healthcare system operates with regards to nutrition and preventative medicine, or are confused by all the different diet trends like keto, paleo, and plant-based, and want some clarity on who to listen to and why, then you will really enjoy today's episode. And a quick announcement before we get started. This will actually be the final episode of season one. I will be taking a little bit of time off to work on some other projects as well as plan out season two of this podcast. In the meantime, if you have been enjoying the show and want to support my work, I would love it if you would leave a rating and review of this podcast in the iTunes or Spotify app or wherever else you are listening. And if you want to make sure you'll be notified as soon as season two launches, head over to my website, bornvegan.org, and sign up for my email list. Now, without further ado, let's get into it. All right, well, welcome to the Science is Gray podcast, Lucky. I'm really excited to have you here.
0: Thanks, Serena. Happy to be here. Glad we were able to meet in Kansas City.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was fun time. Nice to have VegFest happening again. And
0: It's always so encouraging to see the level of community activism that exists, not just in vegan circles, but in the plant-based circles. It's a tremendously important message that oftentimes doesn't get to the places it needs to, especially in Black and Brown communities. So it was a great place to be, and, and, and I'm glad that something like that is set up, and, and Gigi is doing great work over there.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Kansas City. I'm, I'm amazed. We've got a lot going on. Midwest, Detroit. It's like, it's happening. <laughs> it's
0: happening. It's the future, right? So the power, the future of plants. So
1: yeah. So, okay. The first question that I like to ask, what does science is gray mean to you in the context of, you know, our conversations and nutrition and all that?
0: You know, it's an interesting, co- it's an interesting question. I think, I think the way society views science has really evolved in the past year and a half or so with COVID. um, There is a definitive movement to oftentimes discredit information that exists, or overlook the evidence that exists, which is unfortunate, given that most of what we do in medicine is very much based on evidence. And with regards to plant based nutrition, it is remarkable the evidence that exists and has existed for almost a century now. I mean, there are studies dating back to the early 1920s, that show the impact that a diet high in fat or a diet high in carbohydrates can have on insulin sensitivity. Um, and and overall, the the evidence has only accumulated in the past few decades. And this isn't to say that there isn't information out there that hasn't been researched yet. But when, I, when we talk that science is great, it's true. A lot of what we do in the medical profession is based on our own judgment and best evidence that we have available. And I can wholeheartedly say, and, and I, and along with with dozens, if not hundreds of healthcare practitioners in the United States alone, find that the evidence is very compelling that plant-based nutrition should be the standard when we talk about counseling our patients.
1: So yeah, no, you said that well. And um, for people who don't know, you are currently in med school, correct?
0: That's right. I have given my life over to the service of debt. I'm I'm kidding. I'm a fourth year medical student, happily not earning an income currently. But only have a few months left to go. and then you know, from then on I'll be starting residency. Uh, I'm looking to apply to ophthalmology and I'm currently interviewing. So very close, very close to almost being done.
1: So then tell me, since you are passionate about plant-based nutrition and you believe the evidence is absolutely there, what has your experience been like in our in medical school, um, what are your thoughts on on med school and uh, how they deal with nutrition in general?
0: That's an excellent question, Serena. And I think most people in the general public would be shocked to learn that their healthcare provider receives maybe 40 hours or less of any significant nutritional education. Most of that isn't very clinically relevant to what patients experience on a daily basis. And we're so used to asking our doctors whenever we go to visits hey doc, what do you think about this? Or do you think about, what do you think about me switching to this diet? And truthfully, unfortunately, doctors don't know that much and it's of no fault of their own. The system is very much designed to teach us as physicians, the fundamental understanding for how disease processes occur and the best pharmaceutical and and surgical management of those conditions, which has worked pretty well for for most people for for the better part of, of medical education. However, we obviously are now realizing that things are catching up. There is an immense burden of disease that's occurring currently, not just hypertension, not just obesity, but cancer, diabetes, conditions that oftentimes are referred to as chronic diseases have become the norm in American society. And it's very clear that this lack of nutritional education is ultimately hurting our patients. It's very difficult to sell preventive medicine to anybody when it comes to financing, when it comes to federal funding, because that's five, 10 years down the road we're always talking about. It's hard to have that conversation with people saying that we need to invest now so that the future looks brighter. But with regards to, with, with regards to preventive medicine, it is, it is very much going to be a large part of the conversation, hopefully in the next 10 years. It's just going to take a lot of work for us to get there.
1: So do you feel like you've noticed changes like over the four years that you've been in med school? Like, have you seen your curriculum change or anything like that?
0: So we actually created the first ever plant-based curriculum in North America. Um, This was, this has never been done in a medical school. All 300 first-year medical students at the Wayne State School of Medicine learned about plant-based nutrition. When I created the program, along with some of my peers, I really wanted to highlight the the humanistic aspect of nutrition. What do I mean by humanistic? I mean, the value and quality of life that everybody who switched to a plant-based diet had relative to what they were like before they switched their diet. I mean, we're talking about people who have, who are able to lose tens and tens of pounds, if not hundreds per self. And also some people who are able to shed medications who are no longer reliant on the procedures that they were supposed to get. For me, when we talk about nutrition, I think there's a misnomer. People think that, well, I get the 60 and I'll just pass away. Well, I have news for you. If you're dying in the United States at the age of 50 to 60, it won't it won't be a pleasant experience. There is a, a tremendous amount of pain that would most likely occur for the average individual to go through there. And chronic diseases are not easy processes. They're slow, they're painful. They take decades off of your life. And more importantly, they take decades of life you could spend with others. So the curriculum was really designed to focus on the humanistic value uh, and the improvements in quality of life people had. So there was about 20 or 25 Patients who participated, we had 30 healthcare providers um, overall, and we had a cooking demo for all 300 first-year medical students to demonstrate what a whole food plant-based diet looked like, and so that students were able to get some degree of involvement. I'd say that's the most significant change that's happened. I was also very fortunate to lead a group called the Plant-Based Nutrition Group, which significantly improved exposure of plant-based nutrition to the average medical student, even the average medical administrator on campus. Um, But unfortunately, besides that, I haven't seen much change at my school. That's the way it works because medical school is about training the best possible physician. And at this time, uh, nutrition is still a very undervalued component of that. You just have to look at any medical board exam. The one thing I'll say that's encouraging to me is the number of students from all across the country and now even the world, including Canada, the UK and France, who have reached out to me based on the findings that we published on our plant-based nutrition curriculum. All of whom are interested in making an impact and changing their curriculum. I say this time and time again. It's important for medical students to change it within, but there's an equal, there's an equal role for people outside the community who are interested in their medical educate. there's local schools' medical education to be involved in changing that. And to me, I f- see that as the future. I see people becoming more involved in the medical curriculum, asking for changes and having the necessary information to back it up. And what we did at Wayne State, I hope will set. Set a precedent and start a movement for changing medical education in in across the country.
1: That's amazing. No, I think uh, it's really cool what you did with that. Um, I have a bunch of other questions at that, that sure, brought of up. Um, well, yeah. So, so first of all, given what you said about you know doctors not receiving a lot of nutrition education, and that what you did was pretty unique. You know, I think a lot of people look up to their doctors as sort of infallible heroes that know everything about health and wellness. Like you said, they go to their doctor asking, what about this diet or that or, you know, how will this affect this disease? So what do you think about, you know, maybe patients that haven't had supportive doctors who kind of dismissed diet who then say like oh, I'm going to go do my own research and and read up on these topics and then maybe have conflicts with their doctors. You know, what do you think about that whole situation and this idea of sort of listening to doctors and just doing what they say?
0: It's a great question. And, you know, my mentor, Dr. Mills, often jokes to me and jokes to others that medical school isn't an exorcism. You're the same person that you left that you came in. You just know a little more. And hopefully you continue building on the experiences that you gained in medical school on into residency and then in your practice. With regards to um, evidence and regards to advisement, I I tell people this all the time. Patient care is teamwork. The end of the day, it's a team effort. If we're talking about the hospital, it's about the nurses involved, it's about the physicians involved, the administrators, and most importantly, the center of the team and the team captain, I guess, in this analogy is the patient. The patient has to feel comfortable with where they're going, where the, what direction the care is, and that they feel like they're a valid part of the team and that they have the autonomy to make the decisions that they want to make. And so unfortunately, not, not every physician is, is, is so eager to talk about plant-based nutrition, maybe because they don't agree with it, maybe because they haven't looked at the evidence, or maybe they simply aren't comfortable or feel equipped to have that discussion with patients. What I encourage all my patients to do and what I encourage all patients I've interacted with and people in the community is make sure that you at least have a physician that you are seeing currently, that you have an honest discussion with what you're doing, because for people with chronic diseases, there are a number of different medications, the side effects of which are innumerable. And there can be serious complications if you significantly adjust your diet and those medications aren't titrated or adjusted accordingly. Um, It's important to have a physician that is with you on every step of the journey, regardless if you agree with them or not. Um, you know, I tell people too, if you feel like you're not receiving adequate care, you don't feel like you're, uh, enjoying the patient physician relationship that you have with your doctor currently, then that's okay. Seek a second opinion. There's no one telling you that you have to be seen by a doctor, but it's still critical for you to have someone who is helping you make these decisions and is making sure that you're okay. Especially if you're on medication, which a lot of Americans past the age of 40 are on.
1: Yeah. Good, good advice. Seek second opinions. Make sure you feel comfortable um, obviously, doctors are just human and there's a whole variety of perspectives and attitudes and behaviors out there, right? right. Yeah.
0: And, and you know another thing too uh, I, I tell people is second opinions are a great thing to do. Um, you know, I know there's a great resource. Um, okay, so the resource that I tell a lot of patients to look if they really want to find a physician that embraces a plant-based lifestyle, it's called plantbaseddocs.com. So plantbaseddocs.com. It's actually a pretty comprehensive resource. It's actually how I found some of the providers to come speak at our conference. Plant-based Docs has a number of healthcare practitioners ranging from physicians to even psychiatrists on there. And it's a good resource overall to determine who may or may not integrate a plant-based nutrition into their, into their care. And that's something that as well, people can look into in addition to seeking a second opinion. Mm-hmm. I will say the benefit of living in your major urban centers is you may be more fortunate or lucky to find plant-based physicians. But my experience over the past four or five years is people all over the country um, are there. You just have to look. You'd be surprised how many people uh, embrace the plant-based lifestyle. Unfortunately, they just take a little, little more looking to find, but they're out there. No matter where you live, there is someone near you
1: no that's awesome and it's changing all the time my my grandfather was actually um back in the 80s he was one of the people who wanted a second opinion he had a heart attack and you know was supposed to have open heart surgery and Basically, was like, no, I don't want to do this. I want right. to, you know, do something else. And he right. learned about Dean Ornish's work. And his doctor at the time was not very supportive and thought he was crazy to not want the surgery. So, right. but I think it's it's a lot. That was, you know, in the the eighties. So a right. lot easier now to find doctors who. It's would.
0: definitely easier now, and I hear more and more physicians prescribing a plant based diet. Um, I always tell people, still, you if you need emergency surgery please don't delay. It's really important to get the care that you require. So you're able to transition to a better version of you, but it's very hard to do that. If you're in a compromising position, Paul Chatlin, a really good friend of mine, and uh, he currently, he created the chapter known as the the plant-based nutrition support group. Mm -hmm. It's a Michigan chapter that has uh, hundreds of members from all across the state. They host great speakers ranging from Dr. Esselstein to Dr. Mills to Dr. Kim Williams, you name it, they bring them. And those physicians oftentimes talk to the regular community and and people outside of the of medical school alone. But one thing I'll say that um, you know that I was thinking is that Paul was somebody who was also scheduled to have bypass. Paul was someone who had difficulty walking to his car, and he was fortunate that his. Physician prescribed him a plant-based diet, recommended go check out a plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. And it changed the trajectory of his life, much like your grandfather, I'm sure. It changes your life when you realize that these surgeries, although they work for what their purpose is, don't ultimately fix the underlying issue. We're just putting a Band-Aid on, we're mopping up the floor when the faucet's still running. It's really critical to figure out why we have the problems they are, because trust me, if one artery clogs, there's a reason why it clogged and and the others aren't safe, you know? And so with regards to that, it's, it hurts me how many people have had to stumble upon plant-based nutrition rather than being educated or told by the providers they trust, because how many people never heard of it and how many people never got to hear about it? Yeah, And and that's something I think about quite a bit. I never say that everybody has to go plant-based. I'm a realist, but I would never want to feel like I didn't at least have that conversation with a patient and tell them that they had options and that it doesn't have to be like this or at the very least it doesn't have to be as bad. You can always improve improve, improve how you are and once and somebody's actually suffering a major medical condition, I think things become a little more real for them and, and they may be a little more amenable to suggestions like lifestyle change.
1: Yeah, I mean, when when you talk about patients having access to this information or you know doctors knowing about it, there's a new film that was showed at the VegFest where we met, uh, or um, or they showed the trailer for it, but it's out now, they're trying to kill us, which kind of goes into some of the details and the systemic structures of why and how so many people aren't getting this information. And part of that, you know, part of what that film shows is and, and a lot of people in the plant-based world and people that are, you know, interested in nutrition know this, that big pharma and, and sort of their drug pushers. And they do a lot of that, you know, with lobbying, with direct to doctor, uh, influence. So I'm curious, like, what is your inside perspective in med school? Like, have you seen, have you been approached or dealt a lot with drug reps trying to push drugs, um, What are your thoughts on that? And like, what's your experience uh, inside medical school like?
0: So I'd say, um, you know, that's a good question, Serena. And I know it's something that uh, many people outside the medical profession often wonder Uh, with regards to me being approached by drug reps. I'm a little early in my career. I'm a fourth year med student, so I haven't necessarily had those interactions. I do know some drug reps have friends who are drug reps, um, they're great people and, and you know, a job's a job at the end of the day. And ever since the Sunshine Act was actually passed, that pretty dramatically changed how physician and drug reps could interact in terms of what they were able to purchase for them, the financial monetary incentives for prescribing certain medications. Uh, the system changed pretty significantly and, and much so for the better. But th- with regards to the intersectionality of if we're talking about systemic oppression, um, you know, economics and medicine, there isn't a real incentive to keep people healthy because think, think about it any other way. I mean, you make money off of people being sick, especially in the United States. What I think about a lot when I see people in the hospital is that it doesn't have to be like that. And there are so many levels as to which people are failed all the way to their childhood. If you look at what school lunches are like in the United States, this is something Dr. Mills, myself, and a number of other physicians are attempting to do is get school milk out of the lunchroom, out of the cafeterias, especially considering what percent of the population is lactose intolerant and in the United States alone, it can have pretty detrimental effects on kids' development and lead to a host of other problems. Dairy in in, in, in particular has been shown to lead to potentially autoimmune conditions down the road when exposed early enough and a high enough quantity. And so There is this massive industry that exists that is very hard to defeat, but this is why I strongly believe that it is a community-centered initiative that needs to occur, everything from the people that you vote into office and what they support to what you do in your local community. I ran a nonprofit for, helped run a nonprofit for three years, Auntie Nays Village on the west side of Detroit. One of the things we did is we made sure our corner store had fresh produce. Mm -hmm. Uh, Local farmers markets in in low-income communities that are oftentimes considered food uh, deserts are also... Incredibly important. Having people feel like they have a stake in this crisis is really important. And so, the more we push things like the Kansas City uh, Midwest Veg Fest, uh, th- these are all really important small grassroots movements that can help change the tide. And we're seeing it already. Consumer culture is changing so significantly. I mean, I can't remember the last time I would have expected to see more than three types of non-milk, uh, non-dairy milk uh, holiday nog. I, I mean, Chobani's got oat nog. Uh, you know, Khalifa Farms and even Kroger, Trader Joe's. All these guys have their own mm-hmm. holiday nogs. And in ten years ago, would you have ever expected that? Never. Never. Consumer behavior is changing, and you know, as a economics was was what I studied in college. And I think people underestimate the power the wallets have. Um, and so, if you want to continue supporting these industries and continue supporting what they do to people, they're going to keep doing what they do. Uh, as, as consumer behaviors change, it has a pretty significant impact on demand, and subsequently, supply will shift as well.
1: Very, very insightful. And we definitely have a system rigged by uh, economics and, and other policy factors.
0: I mean, healthcare in this country, especially as a business, um, I, I don't necessarily agree with it. I know a lot of my colleagues don't agree with it, um, but it's also a reality that we have to live with currently and, and, and do the best we can to to make something happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and so that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the question about um, maybe it, maybe I should phrase it differently, not just like your experience with drug reps, but I have heard You know, whether it's the dairy industry, like we know they're, like you mentioned, influencing schools and getting in there. So I guess I'm wondering, like, what are they, are they similarly trying to do that in med schools? Are they influencing the curriculum? Have you seen anything where big ag or drug companies are like shifting the focus to treatment rather than prevention or like, you know, more embedded in like how they're training doctors? Have you seen anything like that?
0: So it's difficult to talk about this because the system is designed to treat, not to prevent. This isn't just medicine. It's just the American way of life. Public health is a very low priority in America, especially nowadays. Obviously, there have been some tremendous advantages, uh, advancements in public health in the past you know, century or two centuries in the United States, which has allowed us to have the society we currently have. But when we're talking about medical care, there are a number of pharmaceuticals that have been demonstrated to improve people's lives in ways that we could have never imagined. The advent of penicillin is a great example of that, how it changed the, the, the dynamic of medicine overall. Uh, vaccinations have helped eliminate significant viruses and infections that could potentially cripple people and, and ruin their lives. So when we discuss treatment, the system is overall still designed to teach us about treatment because that's what a healthcare system is. The whole idea in medical school is to one, understand why are things the way they are and two understand how we can fix them or do everything we can to mitigate the complications of disease. Now, I think there's a valuable third tenet that I would like to see more in medical schools. I've seen some good work by some individuals who just have not been able to get a foothold is talk about what medical students already know, which is these underlying mechanisms, things about inflammation, disease, cancer, you name it, cell death and have these discussions relate to the evidence that exists particularly about nutrition and find a way to connect these two. So by that, I mean, embed this information. Here's what this diet has high amounts of and here's what it can do. Here's what antioxidants can do with regards to inflammation. right? Like these are all tremendously uh, helpful avenues that medical schools can start taking on their own. They don't need a big push but start integrating more nutritional information into lectures because we're learning foundations in medical school. It's not like it's not like they teach us immediately about the drugs and move on. That's that's not what makes a good doctor. A good doctor isn't someone who can recite how many ever pages of medication you have, but why is it the way it is and why are they why are they treating it the way it is? It's all about thinking and, and using your, your clinical experience to outline a good plan for a patient. It's what we do in surgery, it's what we do in the OR and what's we do in the clinic. And so there is a there is an amazing amazing potential for that to become for that to become more evident, which is to have nutritional education integrated into a foundational curriculum. Mm -hmm. The drug rep companies don't really influence medicine that way. Fortunately, medicine still is a very much evidence-based independent education. Providers, for the most part, feel very strongly about having an unbiased education, one that is that is filled with a good foundational understanding, like I mentioned to you, and 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 put the patients and and at the best quality of care and improve improve students so that they're able to actually facilitate themselves as good physicians down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look at any medical school, you look at any any hospital system, and you see who they're supported by. And fast food supports a lot of a lot of medical schools more than you think. So um, mm-hmm. you know, and this is the world we live in. A lobbyist is very good at their job, especially if they're a good one. It's what their job is, and it's what they're paid for. And it's something to be mindful of because you have to look at who has the money in this fight. You know, it was the same thing with the tobacco industry. It'll be the same thing with the food industry. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's always money at stake. And the people that are trained in medical school, like you said, are human and they have decisions and they make choices in their own lives that will impact the type of care that they give to their patients.
1: So how much time then, just because I don't know, and I'm not in med school, um, like how much of your curriculum or how much time i don't know maybe in um you know journal clubs or study groups or whatever are you like actually being shown and or reading peer reviewed papers you know whether it's on nutrition or food or whatever but cuz i mean when when you mentioned earlier that doctors don't get a lot of nutrition education you know x number of hours or whatever Like I've noticed in my experience, if I take studies to doctors who aren't supportive of plant-based studies, you know, they've, they've never seen these studies. They have no idea, you know, what the data says. So it just makes me wonder, like, are you, you know, are you studying mostly mechanisms and, you know, pathways, or are you like reading what the data says about health outcomes and different diets and things like that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Medical school, it's very hard to explain to medical school. Um, to someone who hasn't gone through it, because it is a tremendous amount of information in a very short period of time. Your time is already very limited, and you're expected to know a lot at a standard that most people will consider unsustainable. <laughs> but but with, with regards to medical school, if we're talking about nutritional education, like I said, that 40 hours or less, that That 40 hours doesn't mean that this is like these, this is what plants do for patients in these clinical scenarios. It's more like vitamin deficiencies, things that you just won't see, protein deficiency, calorie deficiency, Mm. a lot of topics that you wouldn't necessarily see and very likely will never see in a developed nation, especially in the United States. It's incredibly rare. And truthfully, you probably won't use that much in medical education at all, especially past residency. So with regards to nutritional education, minimal to none. I'd say if I wasn't at my medical school and my group didn't influence the school so significantly, I'd say students would have had little to no exposure to nutrition, let alone plant-based nutrition. It's just simply not a, it's not a priority and it's not because there is a conspiracy or that there is a agenda to, to suppress nutritional information. The way medical curriculum is currently structured, there simply is not enough time. And the people who set the guidelines on what makes a good doctor don't necessarily include nutritional competency as one of them. Now I will say, you know, one of the board exams just became pass fail step one in medical school that can, that, that has, that has potential to improve the diversity of medical curriculum in the first two years. Um, Third year is more clinical, fourth year is more clinical traditionally.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But I I'll say that, you know, with regards to medical education, there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go to get nutrition into there because you have to convince a lot of people that it's worth teaching. But medical medical education is just like general population's opinions. I mean, as it becomes more popular, as people want to know more, medical schools hopefully will, will step up and fill that void and recognize that they have to teach their students more. Um, Kaiser has done some incredible work on the on the west side of the country with integrating plant-based nutrition. I know very recently they've potentially been looking at integrating more plant-based nutrition into their education. I know there's, there's some optional tracks as well. Western is a good, uh, I think, DO school on the west coast as well that has an optional nutritional curriculum within it. They have some plant-based education as well. And the Mayo Clinic in Arizona uh, does have some plant-based nutrition as well. Unfortunately, it's highly dependent on the faculty that are there and what they're passionate about. And that really dictates the type of things that students will learn or the opportunities they have to learn. But things are changing. I mean, the mayor of New York's a vegan now. I mean, you know, there's, there's tremendous potential for this to grow. And uh, I'm looking forward to see what happens in the next few years here.
1: So, okay, then kind of going more into a slightly more controversial topic, I guess, when I hear that you convinced your med school to teach like a plant-based nutrition curriculum and, and you helped, you know, bring this on board, I think of some other friends of mine, you know, my degree was in biochemistry. A lot of my other friends are in med school as well. And, you know, one of them I know is really big into like more paleo or even like a keto diet right now and thinks that, you know that's not just for like any particular specific issue but like that that is you know super healthy and beneficial and has all these you know potential health out, you know beneficial health outcomes and so not that i think this person is doing this but i'm just imagining like this is someone who's in med school who believes that they are you know have been reading the studies and are educated a little bit more on diet and nutrition what would it be like like if they wanted to bring a keto, you know, diet mm-hmm. or nutrition curriculum into their school, like, do you think that would be possible if they had people that were supportive of that? Or do you think, cause like, I think the evidence is leans pretty heavily in one direction, but there's obviously people out there that are, you know, writing books and whole careers equally, you know, on like keto and paleo and believe that the evidence is all there for that versus a plant-based diet.
0: It's, I think the larger topic that you just brought up is obviously something that's becoming a little less opaque in the past few years in that the food industry has done a very good job of subterfuge with regards to information. There is so much conflicting nutritional information out there. It's very difficult for people to understand what they believe is right and what they don't believe is right. But with regards to bringing a curriculum like the plant-based diet, like a plant-based curriculum to a school and the analog being a keto diet... I think you'd be hard pressed to find 25 to 30 people who were able to combat their severe chronic disease on a keto diet. Uh, I know this because a, a, a tremendous amount of studies have found a keto diet to be incredibly unhealthy, especially in the long run. Um, has been shown to have a high morbidity slash mortality on these patients as well. Um, you know, a keto diet overall isn't isn't very advisable. A paleo diet as well, you know, is 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 also in that same realm. And it's interesting because I think. in medicine, you again, expect everybody to understand foundations. And it's funny to me that people will argue with me that glucose isn't a building block of the cell and a building block of people. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me that people tell me that carbohydrates are bad for you. When in reality, our brain's primary source of fuel is glucose. Absolutely, Uh, Most of it is glucose. And and again, like what are carbohydrates? Right. And so it's interesting to me that people, uh, that people in medicine, sometimes I'll have these discussions with because like anything in life, sometimes you just don't consider things because you accept it for what it is. And if we're talking about nutrition and diet, I have a hard time taking someone seriously when they tell me that we don't need carbohydrates, or that they should be a very minimal part of our lives, because it's what our ancestors, you know, grew up on and, and, and what and, and what they lived and died on. And it's and it's from very much us, I think anybody who eats a carbohydrate heavy diet, especially a complex one will in- encounter much more health benefits than someone who restricts their carbohydrates and increases their fat consumption through animal products. Um, so it would be very hard, I think for someone to develop a keto, uh, curriculum because the evidence simply isn't existing as much there is. And if you, it's interesting too, if you, if you really want to talk about the nuts and bolts, you have to look at the duration of studies. You have to look at how long these studies occur. Most of them, especially in the high protein category really are less than a year. or So they don't, they don't extend past that one or two year mark, which really isn't a good indicator for someone's long-term health improvements because if you think about it logically, if somebody who's not really following any sort of dietary principle is then forced or then told, or then decides to adopt some sort of structure to their diet, they probably will encounter, they'll probably encounter some improvements in their overall appearance, maybe some in their lifestyle, because they're not traditionally used to doing those things. Mm -hmm. But if you look over the years and years and years, it becomes very difficult to sustain that, that lifestyle, because it's, it's incompatible with life. I mean, we know this already that Protein isn't what drives our brain glucoses, right? And so if you're going to restrict yourself constantly, um, and not to mention the high amounts of inflammation that you'll have from all the animal products you eat, and the fact that it's not just about what you put in your body, it's what you're not putting in your body, which are carbohydrates, aka the complex foods that keep us that keep us running, then you're gonna run into trouble. So there are all kinds of people in medicine. We're just human, people can have opinions in medicine, and that's why I love science. It's like you said, gray. Um, it's not an easy thing to work through, and it's an even harder thing to distill down to an easy understanding with the patient. But recognizing that it's about the preponderance of evidence that exists. It's not about one or two studies that you find on the internet. It's about what does the body of evidence suggest? What does peer-reviewed literature say about the efficacy of a plant-based diet in relation to other forms of diet? And I'd argue, in a long-term perspective, if we're talking about epidemiological studies, if we're talking even about a few RCTs that exist, randomized control trials that exist. Plant-based diets have far and above been shown to have the most improvement in weight, the, the most improvement in quality of life, and significant decreases in markers that we use, such as insulin resistance, um, cholesterol, and blood pressure. I mean, there are the studies uh, are are never-ending. And you can't find me a population, I think, that has done as well as those in the blue zones in the world who and who have done it primarily on a keto diet.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's that's generally my perspective. And when it became, I mean, the first time it really became clear to me was when I was in biochemistry in college and we were learning those pathways like glycolysis and gluconeogenesis. And And it's like nothing is more straightforward than just sitting there and realizing that like our entire body runs off of glucose, which is Carbs, right? And and um, to me, you know, everything in just the mechanisms, it was like that right there was enough to basically be like keto doesn't really yeah make it doesn't
0: sense. make sense. It doesn't make <laughs> sense. Um, and when people say you know when they eat pizza or they have donuts, like man, I ate a lot of carbs. Did you really eat a lot of carbs or was it a lot of fat? You know, like again, like people, I think people are very used to thinking in these like three categories of macronutrients, which is carbohydrates, protein, and fat. People love thinking in these categories, mm-hmm. but there is so much nuance behind that. It's not just, you know, sugar and not sugar. It's this simple, the simple carbohydrates, this complex carbohydrates, but the benefit you get from a complex carbohydrate diet, rife in fiber is so much more than anything else you could find. I mean, the the health outcomes are truly stunning. There were some really interesting studies that were done um, in a community on the East Coast, I think in in Georgia, and they compared them to a similar population in Africa. And even though the African population compared to the African-American counterparts in, I believe, Georgia, um, maybe didn't eat the best diet, they had like very low a consumption of animal products and a higher consumption of carbohydrates, they had far less colon cancer and and get this Alzheimer's as well. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, there are a ton of diseases that are very much linked to what we eat and people hopefully will start coming to that realization, especially when they realize that they might be one of the people who has to take a medication.
1: So then I kind of going back to, to what we we're talking about a minute before, I guess, would you say that this is, for people who are involved in nutrition for people in med school for doctors in the medical community in general would you say that most people are if they lean you know if they're informed on this topic at all do they generally lean to recognizing the body of evidence that supports plant-based diets or do you have people that you feel like are ignoring the data and, um, or, or people that are really pushing keto or paleo, or do you feel like within the medical community, like people are like, yeah, this is what, when they know that this is what sure. the data says.
0: Ask me again in a few months, we have a couple of research studies that are looking at just that. Okay. Uh- and so most of the data has been collected. We're running stats on them right now. And once we have that information, hopefully by March, April, or so we will be able to disseminate that a little better. But in my personal opinion, um, I don't know. Truthfully, I don't. Um, I think humans, again, uh, doctors are just humans. Um, think about how difficult it was to convince everybody that smoking is bad. Right. Um, food is the same way. Alcohol is the same way. These are things that you know, we partake in on a daily basis maybe not the alcohol bit, but the food bit definitely. And so in such an integral part of our lives, it's very difficult to have a discussion about why that might not be the best alternative or might not be the best path for ourselves, And so physicians, physicians are privy to those concerns as well. But you're right, as as the body of evidence mounts, I think there is potential for people, especially in the scientific field to recognize the validity of the evidence that exists and, and begin accepting that as, as maybe more standard of care. My goal with the curriculum was never ever, ever, ever to, I never wanted it to be this crazy, cool thing that got us in veg news, that got us on these papers, that got us in forks over knives, got us on local television. My goal with nutritional education is to make it so boring and so normal that it's considered standard of care. You know, Mm -hmm. everything, you know, you don't want things to be sexy because then people say, oh, wow, this is great. This is the new, the new and improved version of, of, of lifestyle counseling. No, you want it to be, as routine as possible so that people accept it, integrate it into their training, and they use it and they use it for their patients moving forward. They always say the best government is the one you can't see, you know, especially when it comes to infrastructure. You're not you're not waking up every day, wow, a new road. That's great. But you know, over time, these are the things that you notice that become integrated into your life. And so that's kind of the hope of, of nutritional education, particularly plant-based nutritional education. It's just accepted a standard of care, um, and and I think we're starting to see that more and more, especially with the with the larger HMOs that are existing right now.
1: Yeah, no, I like the way you put that. I um I know that uh, T Colin Campbell, who wrote the China study, he advocates. Uh, he thinks we need like the Federal Institute of Nutrition, you know, like similar to the NIH or Institute of Cancer or whatever. That you know that would that would really show. Priorities were we're in a different place. And right. obviously we don't have that and it's not that normal yet, but, uh, you gotta
0: look where the money is and there's, <laughs> there's still not money in it. And once, once we figure that out, I mean, the, the sky's the limit. Um, but you know, a lot of people in medicine didn't go in it for the money. They, they wanted to help people and, and do the best they can for people on a daily basis. And that's why I think it's so important to give your patients the best nutritional advice that you have possible, because it's one of the key tenants of medicine. It's, it's do no harm. And by not telling your patients about the benefits they could have, particularly when it comes to evidence-based medicine, as it relates to nutrition, you're doing them a disservice. Um, and I don't, I don't want to blame anyone or tell anyone that this is what they should be doing, but because nutritional education is so bereft in, in, in medical education. But as we move forward, we really want it to be a part of do no harm by giving your patients the best nutritional information you could possibly give them as according to the evidence.
1: What do you think about this claim that you know nutrition is really individualized or personalized? Kind of relates to the paleo and keto stuff, but I hear people saying, "Well, like I'm happy, you know, a vegan or plant based diet works for you, but you know, I'm different. I need this or I need that." You know, everyone's different. What do you think about that?
0: Uh, we're not all that different. Um, <laughs> we're, I mean, if, if humans are so different, then we wouldn't all be humans, now would we? Um, no, you know, in, in seriousness, I think. Uh, People do have special sensitivities. I think you're actually seeing a lot more allergic symptoms than you used to see back in the day, which is something that I'm curious about. But you know, you can't force anybody to do anything. But if we're talking about long-term outcomes, if we're looking at large epidemiological studies, if we're looking at where does the evidence point, the more plants you eat, the better off you'll be. It's as simple as that. It's a continuum. It's It's not black and white. It's gray because that's what science is, right? It's a continuum. The more plants you eat, the better off you'll be. And I tell everybody that. And the benefit is the more plants you eat, the less of the other stuff you're going to eat because you're going to be so full. So, you know, with regards to individualized diets, it's, a you know, I, again, it's hard to force people to do anything. But in my opinion, I think a plant-based diet would benefit a large segment, if not the majority of the population. And those who require specialized nutritional diets already are receiving that because of traditional medical care, um, or will soon receive it, but everybody can accommodate their diet for the most part to include more plants, especially fruits and vegetables into their diets. And if not, there's always a way to increase your fiber, increase your antioxidant load, increase your vitamins. I mean, there's always a way to do it, but I tell everybody, eat them, e- eat everything you can eat as much as you can. Smoothies are a great way to get in a lot of greens. If you don't like eating kale or spinach or any of that mm-hmm. stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, more plants eat, the better off we'll be.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and what I tell people who say that is like, yeah, sure, there might be differences between us, but like our digestive system isn't really that individualized. Like yeah, you're
0: still the same person.
1: You've still yeah. got the same teeth structure. It's not like some of us have pointed sharp canines and others don't. It's like all of our, our teeth and jaw structures are basically the same. All of us generally have, you know, the same like colon and stomach structure. And, right. um, and that, that doesn't vary person to person.
0: And for those who, those of you who listen to Serena's podcast, I assume you probably like science a little more than others. Um, I'd highly encourage you to look into my mentor, Dr. Milton Mills, on YouTube. He has some very fascinating talks about the differences between carnivores, omnivores, and herbivores. And there are some pretty significant physiological uh, manifestations. And by that, I mean some pretty significant physical differences between carnivores, omnivores, and herbivores. And you'd argue humans tend a little more to the herbivores because of where digestive tracts are, are created and, and set up the way that the way that we live our lives overall is very much an herbivoric type of lifestyle relative to a carnivore, or even sometimes an omnivore. So, you know, that's another good thing to look into as well. You brought up a good point, Serena, at the end of the day, you know, most people are pretty similar to each other. Those who aren't have had, you know, significant medical complications in their time and require a specialized level of care that most, most people will never hopefully ever have to ever have to access.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, Milton was one of the earlier he's I've interviewed him about, uh, dairy and racism in the nutrition guidelines on this podcast. So that's an earlier episode people can check out if they want, but, um, yeah. And I mean, the first time not the first time I've, I've heard uh, Milton's talks a lot about, you know, our humans designed to eat meat. And I will actually tell you that, honestly, I actually used to be somewhat skeptical. I was like, Oh no, we're probably like, we have eaten lots of stuff throughout time and history. Like, you know, I didn't go around telling people I thought we were hardcore herbivores. I was like, you know, we probably are a little bit more omnivores, but Then more recently, Milton shared some more evidence with me, or I heard an updated version and it was really compelling. And I was like, wow, you know, now I feel pretty confident in uh, saying that I don't even think we're really, you know, I mean, a little bit sure. And I'm sure that in different times that has helped human survival, being able to move away from the equator. And, and, and and that's the way I've always looked at diet and individuality. Like, I don't Hmm. think we're, and this is kind of with science in general. I don't think there is any one perfect diet per se. Of course. With evolution, I think it's all about your fitness to your current environment and circumstances. So if sure. you're worried about, you know, infectious disease or living past the age of 30, you know, you're not really going to be worried about heart disease and diabetes and cancer that you might get from eating, you know, more animal products when you're in a, a you know, western country today, Mm-hmm. Where you know we live a lot longer than yeah eating that little bit of meat that might still be increasing your risk of chronic disease matters a whole lot more <laughs> for your uh, life than it might in other situations
0: right and there are some and there's some good studies that look at rural China as it becomes progressively more urbanized and the difference in chronic disease burden and health outcomes in rural China are actually for the most part are, are significantly better when you control for um, diseases of poverty but overall, it, they actually don't suffer many of the chronic diseases that their urban counterparts do. Um, because, you know, just because humans can adapt doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for us. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're talking about optimal nutrition. And if we're talking about the best quality of life, the best outcomes, not just for ourselves, but for animals and for the planet, then, you know, plant based nutrition is the way to go. And I think most people, when given the opportunity, would like to be a better version of themselves. And I think plants, plants will help you get there a little closer.
1: Yeah. Plants will help you make the better world, a better place, your health, a better place, everything, right. uh, save animals. So where can people go to follow you, find out more about your yeah. work? If that's a thing, uh, yeah, um, no, yeah, I,
0: I have a, I have a food Instagram, but I'll periodically post updates on my, uh, research and all this other stuff that I do. It's called lucky L U C K Y eats E A T Z. And so yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Hopefully once I'm in residency, I'll have an email associated with my institution. Right now it's I'm about to lose mine in four or five months. There's no point giving it out. But if anybody ever needs to contact me or they're interested in doing more work, I mean let Serena know and I'm sure Serena can get, get the right people to me
1: so much for listening today, and if you enjoyed this episode or are enjoying the podcast as a whole and want to support me and help get this information in front of more people, I would love it if you could share this episode and also leave a rating and review of the podcast in the iTunes or Spotify app or wherever else you are listening from. That's all for now, and I will see you in Season 2 of the podcast.